0: Ephesians 1 is where we're going to be. You can go ahead and and put your thumb there if you like. And then uh, we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 6. So Isaiah 6, Ephesians chapter 1. Great to see you. Um, As you're kind of flipping there, Isaiah 6, Ephesians 1. Um, For those of you who called Daisy last week, uh, she says hello. Be returning calls soon. Um, For those of you who weren't here last week, you have no idea what we're talking about. So you can grab the podcast and you can kind of get in on that. And so um, Ephesians 1, Isaiah chapter 6. And we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 6. Now, I want to just preface this whole thing with the first four or five verses out of Isaiah chapter 6. It's one of my favorite passages in in the Bible, like along with about 60 or 70 other ones, right? And so, um, because here's what you see in it. Isaiah is minding his own business, doing his own thing. And all of a sudden, he gets this biblical, big, massive picture of God. Like he starts to see God accurately. So he's doing his own thing when all of a sudden... His life completely is altered by view of God. So this is where you see it in Isaiah chapter 6. And I, I want to read through these first five or six verses with you and, and let you just see this. I mean, I'm praying for you this morning and for me this morning that maybe God would give us something like this. So, so here it goes in Isaiah 6. I'm um, starting in verse 1, he, he says this, in the year that King Uzziah died, okay, so he's given us the time frame here, and then he's about to give us this vision of God that he sees, like he is about to get a glimpse of God that is totally abnormal for us today, we don't think about God like this, okay, so, so here's what he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, and here starts this vision of God that he sees, I saw the Lord so, so here's right off the bat what he's saying is that this God is alive. It is a God that he is seeing. It's a God that is moving. It's a God that, that is in heaven. This God is alive and Isaiah sees him, right? And, and so the first thing he's saying is God is alive. And we're about to get into this in a couple of weeks with Easter. But this is a major separator for us. If you want to look at the difference between Christianity and every other thing going on the planet, it is the fact that God is alive. That's it. This is the separator. It changes everything. Isaiah looks inside, sees this vision, and here's the first thing that settles on his heart. is He has got a God who is not carved out of wood. He's not an idol that we kind of fashion out of rock. He is not in a tomb. The tomb is empty. He is alive. This is the first thing that Isaiah sees. And listen, it changed everything for Isaiah. This God being alive meant everything is drastically altered. Okay, so keep reading here. He says, I saw the Lord. This God is alive. And then he says this about this God that he saw. He's sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. So it's not only that this God is alive, but this God is high and lifted up. This God is on the throne of the universe, right? So so this is the God that is all powerful. This is the God that is the ruler of all things. This is the God that Isaiah sees. It is not a weak God. It's not a God that's willing to be crushed. It is a God that does the crushing. This is the all-powerful, dominant ruler of the universe. Isaiah sees this vision of him. This is a massively big God. This is a massively powerful God. This is the God of the scriptures. This is the God that is alive. He is seated on his throne, and there is not another throne that compares. It's not as if God and Satan are in this tug-of-war It is that God is God and Satan is a pawn in the purposes of God. That's how it works. Okay, so you you see this picture of God that is high and lifted up. Okay, then it goes on to say this. And the train of his robe filled the temple. So this is not just a big God, a powerful God. Look at this. This is also a beautiful God. Okay, now beautiful is not a feminine quality. Beautiful means that he is... That the sum of all desirable things, that God, that the God of the scriptures is the most desirable thing on the planet. He has everything that you could want. Everything that you do want is in God. That's what it means for Him to be beautiful, that's what it means for Him to be stunning. And you know why I think so few of us feel this? I think a lot of us feel the bigness of God, but so few of us feel the beauty of God. You know why I say that? It's because so few of us desire him. I mean, the biblical language sounds weird to say, right? Like The biblical language of a Psalms 42, where the psalmist is going to say, I desire God like a deer panting for the water. That's weird to us, right? And so biblical language has become weird because God is not very desirable to us. Because he's not very beautiful to us. And Isaiah sees this picture of God that totally blows his former framework. I mean, he sees this picture of God now where God is the most desirable thing. Where where Matthew 13, that he is the treasure of the field, willing to sell everything we have for. I mean, anything. We'll, We'll sell it to get it. He is the pearl of great price, willing to give everything we have, anything we own, to get the pearl. For Isaiah, in this moment, God became that. He is beautiful. He is stunning. The train of his robe filled the temple. And and look what it goes on to say here. Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim, each with six wings, these angels. With two here, he they covered his face. With two, they covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another. And this is what they said. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So Isaiah gets this image of God, this biblical portrait of God, that God is holy. That there is a sense that God is totally unlike you and unlike me. We are dumb. God is smart. We are weak. God is powerful. Amen? I mean, we could keep going for a long time here. And and here's one of the problems with our culture. And this is where you eat, sleep, and live. Is that we have grabbed God and made him so close that sometimes we forget he is totally other. That God is holy. It means he is set apart. He is different. By nature, he is different from you and I. By nature, he has got some things about him that are completely other. I think we need to hear that. Okay, look Look what it goes on to say here in verse 4. And it says this, And the foundations of the thresholds they shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So so he just speaks, and, and the, the rafters, right? Like this foundation, it begins to shake. So I think you're getting a picture here of Isaiah saying that this is a God, listen to this, who is to be revered. He is to be revered. There should be a holy awe inside of our heart when we see and we think about and we ponder about the greatness of our God. There should be a reverence there. That is lost today, by the way. There should be a holy reverence. I I think some of us need to hear this. That that God is not only a lamb. God is also a lion. And you can only slap a lion in the mouth so many times before he tears your arm off. Right? That God is not just a lamb. He is also a lion. To be revered. To be the, the stand back. This picture of God for Isaiah makes him fall to his knees. Right? He is to be revered. Okay, now this is how this finishes up here. And this is really going to be the question for this morning. Do your eyes see this, God? Do your eyes, does your heart, do you have a glimpse of that God? Like is your biblical portrait of God, does it fit this? I mean, that's going to be the question for us. So so this is how this finishes up in verse 5. And Isaiah said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. This is what happens when people see God. They see His holiness and they automatically see their sinfulness. And as, okay, now look at this. As that happens, as we see God's holiness, our sinfulness, the cross, the gospel becomes really glorious to us. And the larger that gap becomes between God's holiness our sinfulness, the more Christ-like we become, the bigger the cross grows in our life. The more we forgive, the more we give, the more all of those things start to play out, the more we see that God of the Bible. Okay, now this is how it ends up. So Isaiah says, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. Live amongst the people of unclean lips. And this is how he finishes this in verse five. For my eyes have seen the King. He has seen him. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And that is the question of the morning. Have your eyes seen that king? That's the question. Have your eyes gone there? Is your view of God low and pale and small and puny? Or is it great and biblical and big? That's the question. What What do you see when you see God? When you think of God, and we've said this for the last couple of weeks, there is no more important question. This is the most important thought you will ever think. The one immediately following the word God. It determines everything about your life. Okay, now now this is where we we jump into Ephesians. So go ahead and flip to Ephesians chapter 1. And and this is where we pick it up with, with this idea. So not only does Isaiah see God in the Bible, Moses has seen God in the Bible. David has seen glimpses of God in the Bible. All of your biblical heroes have seen glimpses of God in the Bible that make them fall to their knees. Paul is the same. He has seen a glimpse of God just like Isaiah did. Now, he kind of uses this cryptic language. It kind of cracks me up to describe it. And let me just read this to you in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2. Paul, here's what he says. It's not going to be on the screen, so you just have to listen to this. He says, I know a man in christ now paul could that be you uh, okay so i know a man in christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heavens so he's using this cryptic language to say i am the man who was caught up in the th- like i saw jesus right so i so i know this man who, who in christ was caught up in the third heaven whether in body or out of body i don't know god knows in the verse three and I know that this man was caught up into paradise. And he says this, whether in body, out of body, I don't know. God knows. And then this is how he finishes this. So he's saying, I got this glimpse of God. This is what it did to me. In Second Corinthians twelve four, it says, and he heard, Paul heard things that he could not even speak of, that he could not tell, things which man and, and women, that they can't even utter. That's what he's saying. So he's saying it in 2 Corinthians 12. You can just write that down and look at it later. But he's saying, just like Isaiah saw that picture of God, I have seen that glimpse of this massive God, this beautiful God, this all-powerful God, this God to be revered, this holy God. My eyes, just like Isaiah, have seen him. That is what you get when you start reading Ephesians chapter 1. Okay, this is what we talked about last week, that Paul in in 3 through 14, Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 14, Paul is saying he is a man in the midst of worship. He has fallen to his knees at the canvas, and he is worshiping, praising God, listen, as he paints this picture of God for the people of Ephesus, and in turn, you and I. That's what he's doing in the first 14 chapters of the book. Like, you can read them there, 3 through 14. He is saying, this is your great God. This is the God that in 2 Corinthians 12, I'm telling you, I saw. This is that God. Okay, so you just pick it up in verse 3. Just look at it here. Like, watch it kind of unfold here. He's saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us In Christ, with every spiritual blessing, that's this God. In verse 4, that God has chosen us. In verse 5, in love, he predestined us for adoption. We are adopted by that great God. In verse 7, he has redeemed us, right? In verse 11, we have this beautiful inheritance in Christ. He is unpacking in praise. In the language of praise, he is unpacking a picture of God. That's what he's doing. Okay, now that's where we pick it up in verse 15. So the first 14 verses, praise. Verse 15, the table turns, and that praise, this picture of God, it makes Paul do something. So that picture causes something in Paul. Verse 15 is what it causes. Look at verse 15 and 16. For this reason, okay, so looking back, for this reason, 3 through 14, because I've heard of your faith, in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you, and you might circle that word in my prayers. So okay, if, if three through 14 is praise, 15 through 23 is prayer. Paul is praying. That's what he's doing. OK, now the question is: is, why is he praying? Like, what is it that is making Paul pray? I, what's the, the motive of this? And, and here it is. Look at verse 15 here. For this reason, it's a view back. He is praying because he has a view of the greatness of God. That's why. Because in in Paul's mind, the great God of, of 3 through 14 is his hope. That's where his hope is. That God in 3 through 14 is the reason Paul would say, I need to pray. It's that hope. So listen, our hope and the hope for Paul is not in our government. It's great, but it's not in our government. It's not in healthcare, right? It's not in, I mean, we could just go down the list. It's not in better medicine. It's not in better education. Like, I'm all for making all those things better, but that is not our hope. If our hope is in government, good luck. If it is in better medicine, good luck. Eat all the broccoli, take all the medicine you want to take. You're still going to die, right? It doesn't, if your hope is in anything other than the God of Ephesians 1, 3-14, we are hopeless. So Paul gets this great view of God. He's going to say this. For that reason, because my God is so great, I get on my knees and I plead with him to move. The God that redeems, the God that adopts, the God that I, I get on my knees and plead with that God. The view of God in Paul made him pray. Okay, second reason, he looks forward now. He says, for this reason, and then he looks forward at the people of Ephesus, and he says, because of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. So it's not just the great view of God, but it's also because of his great love for people that he gets on his knees and prays. Those two things, his great view of God and his love for people. That's why he prayed. And, okay, now, now look at what he says here. He says, your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love toward all the saints. That's the mark of every believer. That, that is what it means to be a Christian. That, that we have great faith in the Lord and, and we love the people of God. And listen, I am amazed in our culture how many people have no faith in Jesus, no pursuit of God, no wanting God, and no love for the people of God who call themselves Christians. Faith in Jesus, love for the people of God, giving our lives in sacrificial service to the people of God, those are the flowers that bloom in the life, in the tree planted in the gospel. Are those things blooming in your life? Faith in God, love for the people of God. Maybe you could think of it this way with me. When you maybe look around this room, are there people that you, that you would say, I love them? And listen, I, I know that, like, let's just take the men in here. I, you, you've got to kind of do that under your breath, right? I mean, I, I love anything is under your breath, right? And so let me just be that guy who breaks us out of that. I love some people in this room. I love them. I, I would give my life for some of these people in this room. I would sell my house for some people in this room. I love some people in this room. I don't care what that makes me sound like. I love them. But do you love the people of God? Willing to give your life away for the people of God? That's what he's saying. Okay, so so like maybe you could think of it this way. The answer to praying more is not to love prayer more. That's not the deal. If you want to be a better prayer, if you want prayer to have a more central place in your life, you need your view of God expanded and you need your love for people to grow. That's what's deficient. If we don't pray, and listen, I I, I think if we went around this room, most of us in here would probably say, my prayer life is not what it should be. The answer is God, give me a great view of you and give me a great love for people. That's our answer. So Paul prays. Why is he praying? He's got a great view of God and he's got a great love for people. Okay, now the question becomes, what's the content of his prayer? What is he praying for the people in Ephesus? Okay, what's he praying? Okay, now before I answer that question, let's make sure we've got the context set. The context goes like this. And remember back to the intro, Acts 19. We've got the people in Ephesus. They're very spiritual people. They've got their God. He is in stone, or she is in stone. It's the temple Diana. That is their God of choice. They are great worshipers and great idolaters all at the same time. Okay, so they've got this, this Artemis or Diana, same, same goddess. Um, they are doing a great job worshiping this thing, right? Okay, now all of a sudden in Acts 19, here's what unfolds. You've got a revival that breaks out in Acts 19. Here's why. Because there was a great awe of God that fell upon the people. They saw a glimpse of God that made them fall to their knees. Okay, that's the first part of revival. That we see God. We are in awe of God. There's a reverence there. The, okay, now here's the second thing that happened. The name of Jesus was proclaimed. The name of Jesus was lifted up. And then here's what happens in the people. In the people, they start to confess their sin and they make a covenant with God of a resolve for a different way of living. They bring what would be the equivalent of $6 million out on the street in books, magic books, and burn them. It would be like, I think we use this week one, it would be like men grabbing $6 million worth of Playboys, putting them in the street, and burning them. Now what happens when that goes down in a city? Revival breaks out. And now here's what immediately follows revival. You have a riot that happens. So, okay, God is going, I mean, it's going great. And then all of a sudden, the people of God start to rebel. Not necessarily because they had a problem with Jesus, but because it was cutting into their pocketbooks. So when their business, their pocketbooks suffered, you had the people in Ephesus going crazy. They are now on the rampage to ostracize, to maim, Anybody who's following the way, what Christians were called, anybody who claims that name, they are on the hunt for. The the people in Ephesus that were following Jesus in that moment lost all their affluence, their, their wealth, their money, and they lost all their influence, their status. That's what happened. You've got an ostracized minority, suffering injustice, rights being violated. Now let me stop and ask you the question. What would you pray for them? What would you pray for him? Maybe I could ask this. What do you pray for people? Let, let's say I get cancer. What do you pray for me? Let's say I'm um, your son. I'm in a car crash, legs maimed. What, what do you pray for me? What, what do you pray for people in the midst of great suffering? Now, I want to show you what Paul prays. Verse 17. Here, here's the prayer. So I'm praying for the saints, and, and here, here's what I'm going to pray. Verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you. Look, look at what he's asking. He's not asking that your rights wouldn't be violated. He's not asking that you would have a suffering-free life. He is not asking for no cancer. He's not asking... I mean, you just kind of fill in the blank there of things He is not asking for. And look at what He is asking for. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. In the knowledge of Him. Okay, look at the next verse. Verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that's what he prays for in the midst of an ostracized people people suffering injustice here is his prayer that your eyes might be open to all that god is that's the prayer i mean that's it isn't that kind of amazing that's what he's going to pray for here listen the most important thing in your life is not that you live pain-free That is not the most important thing. It is not that you live without cancer. It's not that you live to 80. The most important thing in your life is that you see Jesus clearly. That's it. That is the most important thing. And you know what? I think with a lot of our prayers, we pray in such a way that we cause God, our Father, to actively work against what we pray for. And I'm not saying we can't pray for people in the midst of cancer to be healed. I think we should. But that is never intended to be the point or the primary emphasis or the primary goal of our prayers. The primary point is that they would see God. That's it. That is the primary point. And maybe, as opposed to praying, that we would have relief from all temporal suffering. Maybe we need to start praying for ourselves that God would do whatever it takes to get our eyes where we can see him clearly. Maybe that would be a better prayer for us. That God would put us in a position to where our eyes can see the king. Maybe that would be it. And here's why this is so important. It's because the more clearly you see God, look at this. The more fully you love God and obey God. The more clearly you see God, the more fully you love and obey Him. If you are, guys, look at me up here. If you're a man in your marriage and you are not living godly in your marriage, you're not investing into your family, you're not spiritually leading, protecting, nurturing your family if you if you're not in that role yet your your solution is not to white knuckle it your solution is not to try harder your solution is to see God that's your solution if you're in this room and you spend uncontrollably your solution is not to try harder. Your solution, first and foremost, is not to get a better budget. Your solution is to see God so you don't think you have to want everything. That's your solution. Now, we could spend all day giving illustrations of that, but that is where change begins. If you need obedience, if you need a better love for God, it starts with seeing God clearly. Okay, think about the prophet Isaiah. This is this is a guy who got a job that nobody wants. Okay, so God comes to Isaiah and says, you're going to be my man to preach my gospel. So, okay, great, I'm in. Okay, now now, God did not come along and say, and here's what's going to happen. You're going to plant a church and things are going to go great. And they're going to come in. I mean, it's going to be a great thing. You're going to see people say, I mean, it's going to be awesome. It wasn't that. It was Isaiah, you're going to preach for the rest of your life and nobody's going to respond nobody's going to listen to you. If you've got a great crowd around you, it's because they're going to want to kill you. That's why. And you know what Isaiah says? Verse 8, chapter 6. Here am I, send me. You know why he said that? Because his eyes, in verse 5, had just seen the king. Without that, he, just like you and I, would have bailed. If we want full obedience, if we want a bigger love for God, it starts with us seeing God clearly. That's where it starts. Okay, so it's not only um, this idea of seeing God clearly. That's how we love and fully obey God. Okay, th- there's more to it. Like th- this idea of seeing has everything to do with the soul. So, so you have at least two sets of eyes. You have these eyes that you can see physical things. And you've got these eyes that are inside of you that sees beyond what is physical. And until we can see beyond what is physical, we are never going to live like God wants us to live. There are eyes in your heart that see and feel God. Verse 18, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. Until our eyes and our soul are enlightened to see the greatness and the grandeur of God, we're never going to be there. It has everything to do with the soul. Okay, and and maybe here's here's a last thought in this. That seeing is a gift from God. Like, look at this. In verse 17, who gives the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in him? In the knowledge of him. God gives it. Who enlightens the heart? God enlightens it. So just like election last week, illumination. God making the light bulb shift on in our heart. That is a God-given thing. It's a God thing to do that. Like, I'll never forget. I am like, I I guess I'm 20 years old. Um, I just finished my my sophomore year in college. And I had this moment at Gloria. I was at a college retreat. And listen, to to that point, I love God, but I didn't see God very clearly. I mean, my love, if it's on a 1 to 10 scale, I, I'm ranking at the bottom half of that. And in this moment, at the end of this year, at this college retreat, kind of doing my own thing, I just kind of happened to get there. In the middle of that, God totally exploded my view of Him. And listen, that is a God-ordained thing to do that. that I mean, that is a God-given gift where He opens your eyes that now you see completely different i mean if y'all had that moment where your eyes are forever different you take hold of a god and you behold a god that forever has changed for you like it's this isaiah 6 moment where you had this view of god and now you leave there saying i didn't have a clue as to who god was i mean it was that moment that completely altered the rest of my life i mean it has forever ruined who i who i was going to be who i am I pray that for us. Here's the cause of this, or here's what this should do for us. If it's God who illuminates, if it's him that makes the bulb flash in our life, if it's God that does that, you know what it should cause in us? We should be people on our knees pleading with God to do it. That's what we should be. If God illuminates, we should be pleading for more of that. Okay, now he's going to ask for three certain things for the people of Ephesus. So, okay, that we would know God, but we would know three certain things about him. Okay, so let's look at this real quick. The three things, starting in verse 18. He says this. Okay, so having the eyes of your heart enlightened, it's a gift from God. The more clearly we see, the more fully we love and obey. Okay, so so we've got that picture down. And now he's going to pray for some specific things. Here's the first one. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. That you may know hope. Prayer one. That you would know hope. And, and here is, here's the beauty for all those in Christ. We have got a hope that never fades. That never vanishes. If you are in Christ, your hope is secure. Now, now here's the truth, and I think this is what makes this difficult for a lot of us in this room, is it doesn't feel like that sometimes. I mean, we just sing a song, you give and take away, right? And some of us are in seasons where God is taking. Some of us are in seasons where God maybe is just freeing our life from the clutter so we can see him. And in the midst of that, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of hope. But here is the reality for everyone in Christ. Everyone in Christ. If you are planted in Christ, regardless of your present circumstances, regardless of cancer that kills, regardless of rights being violated, regardless of if we have lost affluence or influence, regardless of the status of our marriage, regardless of the status of our kids, regardless of the status of any present physical thing, regardless of that we have hope because our eternity has been arranged that's where our hope is regardless of our present circumstances we have a secure future inheritance isn't that beautiful that our hope never vanishes now look at me here that is not that is not walking in a lack of reality that's not walking in wishful thinking. That hope that never vanishes is rooted in Christ, which is reality. That it is rooted in in what the God that makes re- like it is rooted in Christ. Your hope that never vanishes. Okay, now now keep tracking here though. It's not only a hope that never vanishes, and I think this is this is beautiful. Is it's also a hope that anchors the soul. Hope, like, Paul is praying that we would have a glimpse of this hope that anchors us. That regardless of what sort of storms, and listen, we are all guaranteed storms. And it's a guarantee. It's not, a, it's not an if, it's a when. And so regardless of what sort of things hit you, hope becomes this anchor. That's what Hebrews 6 calls it. Hope anchors the soul. So regardless of how, how strong this storm is or how much it beats against your life, we can tether our life to that hope we can tether it there okay so so this is where this became a reality for me i'm 22 years old i get hired at walnut ridge i had no idea what i was doing like i look back and sometimes i think why did you hire me like did you know i was here and like i was way green i didn't have a clue like i just stepped in off the street and i've got this This fairly large ministry that I almost wrecked three or four times. Like, I mean, it it was bad. Six months into it, um, we get one of those phone calls. And that phone call sounded like this. Um, Do you want to do this funeral? We didn't have any idea who these people were. It was a random call, random people, never seen them before, never heard of them. We got that call. So it goes through kind of the ministerial staff. It starts at the top. Do you want to do it? No, I'm out. Goes to the next person. Do you want to do it? No, I'm out. Third person, fourth person, fifth person, sixth person. Now it's to me. I'm the low man. I can't get out of this. I can't say no. There's nobody to say no to, right? And so I have to do this funeral. We have no idea what's going on. I've never done a funeral before. I am scared to death, right? I get Laura to go with me just for backup, right? So I get out there. Um, get to the funeral. The, literally, the hell's angels just pulled in when I did. Not kidding. I mean, we're tatted up. We, I mean, we've got the leather strapped on. This is the funeral. I'm doing the funeral kind of through the fog of smoke underneath the blue little tent. I am scared to death. Okay, so um, I get there and I ask them, okay, so what, what, what are we going to do? What's happening? They say, well, I guess you'll say something. We'll play a song and then we'll be done. So I get up and say something, and then I am I sit down, I'm waiting for this song, and I kid you not, like I'm waiting for the singer to get up, something like that. They pop in, Led Zeppelin. He has made an appearance. Stairway to heaven just went down, right there, under the blue tent, fog of smoke, hell's angels in front of me. We've got Led Zeppelin going at it. I finish, we pray, I leave. Now, now here was the picture that 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 funeral left me with. It was a picture of of grief with no biblical hope. Sorrow, death with no biblical hope. A couple of weeks ago, I went to a funeral of a 31 year old pastor friend of mine. Um, Got a young wife, got a four year old daughter, or four year old son, one year old daughter. Um, he, he, he was one of those guys who had a really hard time shutting his mind off. So he would take Tylenol PM and uh, took enough of those where it did a lot of damage to his kidney, eventually his, livers, his liver, and uh, he goes into ICU. They take him to the hospital. Um, he's in the ICU for two days and dies in the hospital. Little wife, young family. So we go to the funeral, and uh, the wife gets up, and she does the eulogy. Not sure I could have done that. And so she starts and she gives the man behind the pulpit. Um, she gives these tender pictures of him caring for their kids, um, investing into their kids, growing their family in the things of God, teaching their family the things of God, kind of the man behind what you see on the stage. And then she, she talks about these two days in the hospital and how, how God had kind of planted in our heart Psalms 116. And so she starts reading Psalms 116 over and over while she's in the hospital watching her husband die. And she gets to Psalms 116.15 and it says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And so she's talking about this internal struggle that's happening inside of her heart in a hospital room watching a 31-year-old man die. Like, there's times she wants to believe it, but just can't, right? I mean, there's times that she loves it and claims it, but then times she hates it, all at the same time. Um, Barry dies. She gets home on that Friday night, and she uh, she looks at Barry's desk where he does a study and sees the treasury of David, where um, Charles Spurgeon commented on most of the Psalms. And so she, she grabs the one on Psalms 116, turns to verse 15, and here's what Charles Spurgeon said. And this is how she closed her time at this funeral. She read this quote, and it's going to be up on the screen for you. This seems, this verse, Psalms 116-15, seems to indicate that the song was meant to remind Jewish families of the mercies received by any one of the household, supposing him to have been sore, sick, and to have been restored to health. For the Lord values the lives of the saints and often spares them where others perish. But now here's the other part. They, the saints, shall not die prematurely. They shall be immortal till their work is done. And when their time shall come to die, then their death shall be precious. The Lord watches over, and this is what she quoted and emphasized, the Lord watches over their dying beds. Look at this phrase. The Lord smooths their pillows, sustains their heart, and receives their soul. Those who are redeemed with precious blood are so dear to God that even their deaths are precious to him. I left that funeral thinking, that's the hope in God. That we have got a God that Romans 8 is going to say that, I'm convinced of this. That nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Life or death, it's not going to do it. Angels or rulers, not going to do it. Not height, not depth, not powers, not things in this world, things in the one to come. Nothing in all of God's creation can separate us from the love of Christ. That is our hope. That is the anchor. That is the thing that never vanishes for those in Christ. I get it interesting that 1 Corinthians 13 says that, okay, so you've got hope, faith, hope, faith and love. Hope is the greatest, though, it says. And here's why. Because there will be a day that our hope, Jesus, is standing in front of us. We'll have no more need for hope. There will be a day that we'll have no more need for faith. The object of our faith will one day stand before us. And all we'll have left is love. But for now, until that day comes, we've got faith and we have got hope to anchor our soul if you're in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? And and he's praying for the people in Ephesus. Do you see that? In the midst of your suffering, God giving and God taking away, do you see that hope that is in Christ? He prays a second thing for him. Verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So it's not only hope that he's praying they'll see in Christ, but he's also praying that they'll see the riches they have in Christ. This beautiful inheritance that they have in Christ. And listen, and this is where I think this is a struggle for us. Because until we see with the eyes of our heart, all we'll see is with the eyes of our head. That's the only thing we'll see. And look at me. Your riches have nothing to do with your cash. Nothing to do with it. It has nothing to do, like the Bible is going to call cash worthless wealth. That is what it is. Your wealth has nothing to do with the size of your wallet. Nothing to do with it. And this is where the people, uh, we, we read this passage a few months ago. In Revelation 3, the church in Laodicea, this is what made them lukewarm. Is they looked at this and they said, you know what? We have no need of God. We are rich. We have made ourselves prosperous. We have done all that we need to do. We need God for nothing. And if you're not careful, because we're all rich in this room, Just by nature of where we live, we are rich in this room. And if you're not careful, your attitude will be the exact same. Until we start to see with not these, but these eyes out of our soul. Okay, now this is how that passage in Revelation finishes. God looks at him and says, are you a fool? Are you crazy? That is worthless wealth in your pocket. You have a lot of it, but it is worthless. You don't realize that you are naked and pitiful and wretched and poor. And then he goes on to say this. I counsel you that you would buy from me gold. The true riches. And if you're in Christ, look at me right here. Our gold is the gospel. That's our goal. It's because of the gospel that we have Jesus. Jesus. The gospel is what makes us rich. Supplies every need for every obstacle you face. The gospel. That's where it is. And the gospel is gold because the gospel gives us God. That's why. Because the gospel says, here is your God. Look at him. Behold him. See him. He is yours and you are his. That's why it's gold. Because in the gospel, we get God. And until our eyes, like these eyes of our hearts, see that, we'll go on living just like the church in Laodicea, like we are rich and have no need for God, when what's in our pocket is worthless. May God give us a glimpse that all the gold on the planet is worthless outside of the gospel. May God help us see that. Praise this last thing for him. Verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? So he's praying that their eyes would just not only see hope, riches, but it would see the power they have in Christ. So, okay, now, now let me throw an illustration out here to maybe help us with this. It's not power to do anything. It's not that. Like if I were to come up to you and say, uh, hey, I want to fly. I'm going to fly. I'm doing it. I'm going to climb up on top of the building, and I'm jumping off. And watch out. This power, I've got it. Let's do this. I think I would really quickly get a handshake from gravity, right? I mean, that's what would happen there. We would be quickly reacquainted with the fact that gravity works. Okay, now let's contrast that with this. If I jumped into a plane and said, I am ready to fly, let's do this. I can sit back in the seat, I can grab a book, and I can look up, and in no time we'll be 30,000 feet in the air. And that's our imagery here, that when we are in Christ, we have the power of another working for us and in us for his glory, our joy. When we're in Christ. Okay, then he uses these illustrations to help bring to life this power. So look at what he goes on to say, verse 20. This is the power, this power that we're talking about here. It's the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So he's saying that the power that you have access to, the power that is yours in Christ is the same power that God used to raise a dead man. That's the power. And so would we all agree that we, I mean, it's not very common for us to see a guy dead raised to life, right? Especially a guy dead for three days. Probably have lived a long time and never seen that, right? And so God is saying that power is yours. That power that raises dead people is yours. Okay, then he goes on to say this. Look at verse 20 again that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So it's not just the power that raises the dead, it's the power that raises dead men and then seats them as the ruler of everything. It's that power that not only raises, but causes to rule over every earthly power. So you want to talk about the president? He is a servant of God. If you want to talk about kings, if you want to talk about your boss, if you want to talk about anybody, you just fill in the blank. They're all servants of the powerful, great God of the Bible. God raises Jesus from the dead and seats him as ruler over all things. And now God channels the course of history, this river of history, to end where he wants it to end, at his feet. Okay, and then he goes on with one more here, verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Puts all things under his feet, over all things, that this power is the power to win every battle, every war. That God says, listen, everything you face, I have won. Christ is our champion. He is our victor. He is everything. Everything right? A key is the resource we have to win every battle. So there is not a single temptation. There is not a single anything that can separate us from God. And it's all in Christ. Okay. So, and this is, this is where it ends in verse 22 and three here. And I think this is the beautiful part that that we'll close with is he gives all of that. Look at verse 22 and three to who? To the church, which is his body. He has given all of those resources, hope, riches, power, to the church. Look at me right here and we'll close. To you. All of those things. The question is, do we see it? Do we see it? Do our eyes behold it? That's the question. Let's pray. Have you ever wondered why we don't see more the power of God working in and through our lives? Now, I wonder that all the time. I get so sick of hearing, in a good way sick, but I get so sick of hearing how God is moving in China, in Latin America. I mean, I love it, but I want to see it. And if you ever just stopped and asked, why don't we see more of that power that raises, that seats in the place of honor and rule, that wins every battle, every, every war? Why don't we see more of that? And, and you know what I think one of the answers are that we need to hear? I, I think one of the reasons we don't see more of it is because we don't place ourselves in positions of faith and risk where it has to happen. That we live so comfortable, that we live in, in such a state of security, that we worship security to a degree that we won't step out in dangerous and risky situations, aka gospel conversations. That we won't step out in risky situations to make sure the power of God sustains us. That, that we stay contained in, in our lives where we can do it, where our power works, where we've got the control. So I, mean, I pray that for us that we would be risky people. We would be people that um, would place ourselves in positions to where the power of God, the hope of God, the riches of God have to be apparent. Have to be apparent. So so here's, we're going to do t- today a little bit different at the end. And I'm going to start by asking you this question. Do you need to see more of God? That's the question. I mean, do you need your eyes to be enlightened? You can see God. Now, now here's the evidence of that. When that happens, we have got a desperate pursuit of God happening. When, When we have seen God, we are stalking God. We are on the hunt for God. I mean, how many people do you know that way? See, when our eyes see God, we fully love Him. We are fully pursuing. We are on a full frontal, passionate, desperate pursuit of that God. That's what happens when we see God. Do you need the eyes of your heart enlightened? Do you need God to wipe away from the, the scales here? Listen, this is the this is the battle. This is Satan's major ploy, 2 Corinthians 4 4, that he would blind the eyes of unbelievers, right? And so I think there's application for believers as well. That we continually for the rest of our lives have to cut away curtains and veils so that we can see Christ well. So, so do you need some things cut away? you need the holy spirit to come in and to give you a great glimpse to set your life on this passionate desperate pursuit where you would see the hope the riches the power of who we are in christ and this is not just something we will have this is something that we do have you need god to do that for you that's a gift from god so if you need that would you just look up here at me If you would say, man, I want that. I need that. Like right now, I'm desperate for that. Why don't you you make sure you look up here at me? Thank you. Thank you. Look up here at me. Awesome. A lot of eyes across the room. Great. 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 Okay, so, so here's how I want to end today. Um, we're going to just kind of open up these altars to kind of finish today. And we're going to sing a song, uh, maybe a song and a half. And I just want to give you some space to plead with God for that. It is a gift of God. God illuminates, so we plead for it. We plead that God would open up our eyes to see him. Okay, that's our part of this. That we plead God that he would do it. Okay, so we're just going to open this up and, and allow you to pray. Maybe, maybe this. You want to know the thing you can pray for a wayward friend, a wayward family member, a wayward child, is that God would open up their eyes. So if you need to pray for, for maybe a family member, a friend, a coworker, this would be a beautiful time to do that. So you, you've got a couple of options. You can just turn around in your seat there. You can come up here to the front. I would encourage you to do that. I think there's just something that comes along with movement in a time like this. If you want to come up here and pray, you want to grab your wife, your family. You want to pray. You can use this stage, this the front of this up here. Um, and I just want to invite you to do that. And, and if, you, if you didn't raise your eyes and look up at me, then here's what I'm assuming. That, that God has set your heart in such a way that he has been enlightened he has been really gracious to you recently and maybe you want to come and pray over a friend that you see up here that is praying, God do that so maybe you want to be used by God to just come over and pray over um, some of the guys that looked up so I'm going to pray, we're going to sing and we'll open up this, this front for you God we love you and God I pray for um, people that I love across this room families, dads, moms teenagers singles college god i pray for our eyes to see you to know you god you tell us the psalmist says in psalms 1 I'm 19 verse 18 the psalmist pleads with you open up our eyes that we may see the wondrous things from your law open up our eyes so god i pray that god i pray that you would do that you'd be faithful that you would that you would come in and move in our hearts this morning God, that we would have a view of you that is so big, so beautiful, that we would love and joyfully surrender all that we are to you. So God, I pray that in your great and glorious name. So why don't you stand? And if you need to make a move this morning, you feel free to do that.